Baptists have always claimed that they are not a creedal people and have always taught that all men have the right to believe as they wish. But they have always insisted that if one is to be a Baptist, there are some things that must be believed, otherwise one has ceased to be a Baptist. For example, Baptists do not baptize infants. Anyone who wishes to do so may believe in infant baptism and practice it as well, but that person is not a Baptist. So also with immersion as the mode of baptism. Anyone may believe that sprinkling and pouring constitute valid baptism, but those who do have no right to denominate themselves as Baptists. Anyone who wants to believe in episcopacy may do so, but those who so believe cannot be termed Baptists. No one who is truly a Southern Baptist has a right to insist that others must believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, but it is consistent to argue that those who do not have really ceased to be Southern Baptists. What evidence then can be found to show that the Southern Baptists have in their midst some who deny biblical infallibility? Robert S. Alley, University of Richmond The first illustration that comes to mind is that of Professor Robert S. Alley. He graduated from the University of Richmond in Virginia and secured a B.D. degree from the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville and a Ph.D. degree from Princeton University. At the time he authored his book, Revolt Against the Faithful, he was, according to the book blurb, an associate professor of religion at the University of Richmond and an active member of the Southern Baptist Convention. The university has been a Baptist institution and has consistently received substantial financial support from the Virginia State Baptist Convention. Despite these Baptist connections, neither the Baptists of Virginia nor those of the university where he teaches have taken any action or done anything to indicate their concern that he has abandoned the foundational truths of the Christian faith. Dr. Alley denies that the Bible is the infallible word of God. He wrote, While some persons may continue to hold that the historic Christian belief in biblical infallibility and inerrancy is the only valid starting point and framework for a theology of revelation, such contentions should be heard with a smile and incorporated in the bylaws of the Flat Earth Society. But always we should respect the integrity of a person in an argument or debate, though his position may indeed be quite ridiculous. End of quote. Dr. Alley quotes disapprovingly from the book Why I Preach That the Bible is Literally True by former Southern Baptist Convention President W.A. Criswell. Dr. Criswell believes in biblical infallibility. Dr. Alley does him the injustice of supposing that he teaches the dictation theory of Scripture. He says, The idea of verbal inspiration is inconsistent both with human experience and the message of Scripture. It is sometimes argued that there are biblical passages which do support the theory of dictation. What has been presented is the sum total of biblical evidence. That is, 2 Timothy 3.16 Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, advanced by literalists to support belief in infallibility and verbal inspiration. How inadequate and unconvincing. End of quote. Later, Dr. Alley says, Many who promote infallibility of the Bible are simply dishonest. They know better through education and reading, but find it advantageous to exploit the uninformed, whom they say they have been called to serve and save. They parlay this false doctrine into success, fame, and large churches. 
Such moral dereliction is far too common in many modern public religious activities. To this type of deceit there is no response except contempt and rejection. End of quote. Elsewhere he says that Adam, Eve, Noah, Jonah, these were fictitious persons who proclaimed a truth that the virgin birth is not to be believed, that miracles did not occur, and that the resurrection is not a historical fact. Howard B. Colson, Outreach A second illustration of how biblical infallibility is denied comes from Outreach, a magazine published by the Sunday School Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. The magazine is designed to provide helps for church staff members, Sunday School general officers, and Sunday School council members. In one issue, Dr. Howard P. Colson, Editorial Secretary of the Sunday School Board, published an article entitled, Truth Without Any Mixture of Error. He wrote, Some people still argue that the Bible is a perfect authority even in scientific matters. But if that were so, how does it happen that the conception of the earth's shape as found in Scripture has been shown not to be a literal fact? The earth, as the Bible writers speak of it, is flat, which is not true, Yet we know that the earth is actually a sphere. But the purpose of the Bible is not to tell men the shape of the earth. Its purpose is to lead men to God. End of quote. Dr. Colson asks, What is the nature of the error of which the Bible message is completely free? We have said that the truth which constitutes the biblical message is religious or spiritual truth. By a like token, we may now say that the error from which biblical truth is completely free is spiritual error. End of quote. He is of the opinion that when Southern Baptists say the Bible is truth without any mixture of error for its matter, they mean that the saving truths taught in the Bible are free from any spiritual error. William E. Hull, Louisville Dr. William E. Hall was, until the summer of 1975, a long-time professor at the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville. The Baptist program published an article of his entitled, Shall We Call the Bible Infallible? It had been presented first as a sermon at the Crescent Hill Baptist Church in Louisville. At the time, Dr. Hall was Dean of the School of Theology at the Southern Seminary. He had received the B.D. and Th.D. degrees at Louisville and had pursued postdoctoral studies at the University of Göttingen in Germany in 1962 and 1963. In 1968, in his inaugural address as Dean of the School of Theology, he acknowledged his indebtedness to Rudolf Bultmann, whose demythologization viewpoint has led him to deny virtually every cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. The incoming dean made it clear that Louisville should have a curriculum that was not to be committed either to conservatism or to liberalism, a position which many friends and foes alike find difficult to understand. In his Baptist program article, he correctly stated, it was not until the post-Reformation period that a doctrine of scripture was considered integral to a confession of faith. Why this was so, I have already explained. He goes on from there to discuss the article of the New Hampshire Confession on the Scriptures, that is, truth without any mixture of error for its matter, and claims that this always has to do with the saving knowledge of God mediated by the Bible, never to the historical accuracy of the date and place of every event, which is the announced concern of some of us. Dr. Hall said, 
to apply the concept of infallibility to the Bible may do justice to the fact that it was inspired by a perfect God, but it does not do justice to the fact that this revelation was apprehended and written down by imperfect men. If the human writers were limited, as they themselves claimed, then their limitations belong also to a balanced doctrine of Scripture. He also said, Some contend that a recognition of the human imperfections of the biblical writers leads to a low view of inspiration that is defective or even heretical in comparison with a high view which sees the entire process as infallible. Quite to the contrary, I would insist that the Bible is far more miraculous if it conveys the ultimate truth of God by means of ordinary men. The infallible text is a theory, not a reality. To affirm something about a Bible that does not exist can hardly help but be misleading. He numbers himself among those who have just as clearly seen the human character of the Bible. They know that its dates do not always agree, that its doctrines develop, that its grammar is sometimes confused. They cannot give up this recognition of the humanity of its writers, for to do so would require them to fly in the face of established facts and to repudiate the advances of science in recent centuries. End of quote. The problems connected with the views of Dr. Hull are obvious. He must decide which scripture he will trust as truthful and what he will distrust as false. If the assured opinions of science are accurate and they really do conflict with the teachings of scripture, then science stands in judgment on the Bible rather than the Bible standing in judgment on science. Moreover, if the writers in their humanity were subject to scientific, historical, and other errors, why were they not also subject to theological errors? And if the Holy Spirit could preserve them from theological error, why could not the same Spirit preserve them from scientific and historical errors too? One is no more improbable than the other. Dr. Hall left Louisville Seminary to become minister of the First Baptist Church of Shreveport, Louisiana, at the end of 1974-75 school year. There were persistent reports that he was edged out of the seminary for his views on scripture. This was denied by him and others. If it is true that his resignation was not forced and that he could have remained at the Southern Baptist Seminary, then it becomes clear immediately that the seminary is willing to employ faculty members who view the Bible as errant and who would then be free to teach their students that viewpoint. In any event, the seminary made no public statements that could be construed as affirming a belief in biblical inerrancy for the institution or for its faculty members. The Toy Case Since the Southern Baptist Seminary at Louisville was the institution at which Dr. Hall taught for more than ten years, it may be instructive to go back to its early history to review the famous Toy Case. It is important for it establishes a fact that should not be overlooked in any discussion of biblical inerrancy. The confession of faith that controlled the Southern Baptist Seminary and is still printed in its current catalogs commits the institution to this view of Scripture. That is, the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments were given by inspiration of God and are the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Now it can be argued that this statement does not require anyone to believe in biblical inerrancy, although the convention statement of 1925 does. But the toy case makes it plain that this statement was understood to mean exactly that, as we shall see.
Crawford Howell Toy studied in Germany after the Civil War and returned to teach at the Louisville faculty. His views on the Bible were criticized, and in 1879 he prepared a paper setting forth his understanding of that doctrine, that is, the inspiration of Scripture, and submitted it along with his resignation in case his position was not satisfactory to the Board of Trustees. His resignation was accepted with two dissenting votes. The following is part of what Dr. Toy had to say about Scripture. At the outset, I may say that I fully accept the first article of the fundamental principles of the seminary. That is, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments were given by inspiration of God and are the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge and obedience. And that I have always taught, and now do teach in accordance with, and not contrary to it. It is in the details of the subject that my divergence from the prevailing views in the denomination occurs. The divergence has gradually increased in connection with my studies from year to year till it has become perceptible to myself and others. I find that the geography, astronomy, and other physical science of the sacred writers was that of their times. It was not that of our times. It is not that which seems to us correct, but it has nothing to do with their message of religious truth from God. The message is not less divine to me because it is given in Hebrew and not in English or because it is set in the framework of a primitive and incorrect geology. I am slow to admit discrepancies or inaccuracies, but if they show themselves, I refer them to the human condition of the writer, believing that his merely intellectual status, the mere amount of information possessed by him, does not affect his spiritual truth. If our Heavenly Father sends a message by the stammering tongue of a man, I will not reject the message because of the stammering. What I have said of the outward form of the Old Testament applies, as I think, to the outward form of the New Testament. I will not lightly see a historical or other inaccuracy in the Gospels or the Acts, but if I find such, they do not for me affect the divine teaching of these books. The center of the New Testament is Christ himself. Salvation is in him, and a historical error cannot affect the fact of his existence and his teachings. End of quote. No one can escape the conclusion that Dr. Toy, who was an honest man and who did not seek to hide his views, understood the statement on Scripture to imply the infallibility of the whole Bible. He offered no arguments to show that his views were in full agreement with the statement on Scripture, or that when he acknowledged the existence of historical or scientific errors, this was in harmony with the seminary's confession. He recognized that what he believed was not really in accord with the statement on Scripture, even as he acknowledged that biblical inerrancy was the prevailing view of the denomination. Since the seminary accepted his resignation and the board approved it, it shows that the institution and its official board understood the statement the same way Toy did. Therefore, if any deviation from that earlier understanding is acceptable today, then the statement has been reinterpreted and a meaning attached to it that was unacceptable in Toy's day. The Case of the Christian Index Editor Jack U. Harwell, editor of the Christian Index, a publication of the Baptist Convention of the State of Georgia, exchanged letters with Joe Dunaway of Rome, Georgia. In his letter to Mr. Dunaway, dated December 31, 1974, he wrote, I do believe that the Bible is the Word of God. 
I do not use the word infallible because the Bible is written by men. I would ask you to check very closely the statement, truth without any mixture of error. The statement says that truth is not mixed with error, but it does not say that the Bible is not mixed with error. I could cite many, many instances where a literal, absolute, blind acceptance of the Bible without any understanding of human nature leads to all types of contradictions. I do not believe in the plenary verbal inspiration of the Bible. I do not believe that Adam and Eve were one man and one woman. I believe that the terms Adam and Eve represented mankind and womankind. There are volumes and volumes of biblical scholarship which document this theory many years back. One of the most simple and basic answers to refute the belief that Adam and Eve were one man and one woman is the simple question, where did Cain get his wife? If Adam was one man and Eve was one woman and they had two sons named Cain and Abel, who were the parents of the woman that Cain married? From Jack Harwell's letter we see that one misstep inevitably produces a harvest of errors, or at least more difficult questions than ones that troubled Harwell in the first place. If Adam and Eve were not one man and one woman, then there could have been no Cain and Abel, and the non-existent Cain could not have married any woman. So that the question where Cain got his wife has no meaning. More than that, however, it means that the genealogical tables of Genesis and Chronicles are false, and this untrue historical material has been carried over into the New Testament. No one can read the genealogical table given in the Gospel of Luke without realizing that Luke believed in the historical Adam. He traced the ancestry of Jesus back from generation to generation, naming men whom we know lived and died. But at the end, if what Harwell says is true, history becomes non-history, and the tables go from truth to error if Adam is a non-existent person. What further complicates the problem is that Paul in Romans speaks of the first and second Adam. Paul speaks of Jesus as the second Adam. But if there was no first Adam, the whole point becomes senseless, and Paul is guilty of an assumption about the historical Adam who sinned and was lost that is useless as well as senseless. There can be no doubt that Paul believed in a historical Adam, as did Luke. Whom then shall we believe, Paul and Luke or Harwell? This is an interesting question. The Association of Baptist Professors of Religion Among Southern Baptists, the Association of Baptist Professors of Religion is an organization comprising liberal faculty members in Baptist institutions. Robert Alley, of whom I have spoken, is included among them. On February 23, 1970, the Baptist Press, the new service arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, issued a release concerning the annual meeting of this association. T.C. Smith, its president and a faculty member of the Baptist School, Furman University of Grenville, South Carolina, delivered an address in which he took issue with Southern Baptists who hold to the traditional view of the Bible. He stated that the view of the Bible of most Southern Baptists is inadequate. He said, we need to come up with a concept that is more suitable to ourselves our students, and our conventions. He was critical of a Baptist church in Illinois that had dropped from its fellowship a member who did not believe in the infallibility of the Bible. Smith asserted that more freedom, that is, to move away from infallibility, is essential to a modern understanding of Scripture. 
Moreover, he asserted that modern Christians should have as much liberty in determining their canon of scripture, that is, which books belong to the Bible, as the church fathers had in their time. He said that modern scholarship has more valid criteria for selection of the canon than did religious leaders 16 centuries ago. He claimed that scholars who employ the historical critical method of biblical research are following Christ who contradicted the self-assumed authority of the rabbis who accepted no new revelation. It is the Bible, not God, that we are questioning, the learned professor stated. At this meeting, Professor Alley and W.C. Smith of Richmond reported that members of the association had been intimidated as a result of a prior action of the group after it had objected strongly to the publicity given to W.A. Criswell's book, Why I Preach That the Bible is Literally True. They said that the silence from Southern Baptist theological seminaries on the issue of biblical interpretation was thundering, and that Duke McCall, president of the Southern Baptist Seminary at Louisville, had become a champion of biblical fundamentalism by criticizing the resolution in a widely distributed article. When anyone begins to examine the literary productions of Bible department professors in institutions normally aligned with Southern Baptists, he will find that numbers of these teachers have already scrapped biblical inerrancy, for this is demonstrated by their critical views of scripture. An illustration of this can be found in the book, People of the Covenant, an introduction to the Old Testament by Robert Wilson Crapps, Henry Jackson Flanders, Jr., and David Anthony Smith. All of these men wrote as members of the faculty of Furman University, a Baptist institution. In this book, they accept the documentary Hypothesis of the Pentateuch, giving full approval to the notion of the JEPD theory. The written Yahwistic and written Elohistic histories were taken from oral traditions, gradually reaching a normative form. Yahwistic written form came around 1000 BC. The Elohistic form came later than 1000 BC. The Deuteronomic history was written later than 587 BC, and the unified collections of Israel's traditions from creation to exile were put together sometime in the exilic or post-exilic period. They said, The historical narratives in the Old Testament for the most part are not first-hand contemporary records like those found in the inscriptions and records of other ancient peoples. Instead, they are religious works that have gone through a long history of compilation, editing, and copying. Within the Old Testament, four major interpretations of the history of Israel are discernible, each of which supplements and complements the other. From this, it is easy to discern that the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch affirmed in Scripture is untrue. When discussing the prophets in the Old Testament, these scholars assert that in Isaiah chapters 40 to 66, for example, the prophets' words and deeds were remembered, recorded, and elaborated by a circle of disciples. Gradually, oracles were added to the original core of the genuine Isianic material. The majority of chapters, 1 to 39, had thus been shaped by the time of the exile. From Isaiah to 2nd Isaiah, although he remains anonymous, there can be no doubt about the tradition in which the unknown prophet of the exile stood. He belonged to the disciples of Isaiah of Jerusalem. But scripture says that all of Isaiah was written by the prophet, as we shall see in a moment.
When speaking about the book of Daniel, these writers say that certain factors suggest that the book was written during the strenuous early days of the Maccabean revolt, or about 168 to 165 B.C. Throughout this volume, there are constant references to and recommended bibliographies of liberal scholars. There is no presentation of the views of historic orthodoxy, nor are there any bibliographic references to evangelical scholars like Oswald Alice, Edward J. Young, Gleason Archer, etc. The Interpreter's Bible, a liberal work, is commended highly. And they say that the introductory articles on the whole Old Testament appear in Volume 1 and are especially helpful, and are, of course, based entirely on liberal, critical viewpoints. C.G. Allen and the Sunday School Board All of this provides an interesting background against which to understand a letter I received from C.J. Allen of the Sunday School Board dated June 27, 1972. In it he wrote, As one who has been involved in the theological thought life of the denomination for more than 30 years, I have yet to discover an iota of responsible concern to endorse and promote destructive higher critical views within the denomination. Since anyone familiar with the historical critical method of biblical research, as well as form and redaction criticism, knows that they all include destructive higher critical views, C.J. Allen can be said to have his head in the sand. The case of the Broadman Bible Commentary is another indicator that points up the prevalence of the problem I am addressing here. Volume 1 was released in January 1970 by the Broadman Press. Almost immediately, the Genesis Commentary was pinpointed as theological aberrant. It was written by G. Hinton Davies, Principal of Regents Park College, Oxford, England. There can be no question but that he approached Genesis with a documentary hypothesis in mind, but the objections swung on the question of biblical infallibility. Dr. Davies stated boldly that he did not believe God ordered Abraham to kill his son Isaac, but that Abraham's decision is the climax of the psychology of his life. This was clear enough, but the problem connected with Davies' statement was that it contradicted the biblical account which claims that God specifically and unequivocally commanded Abraham to slay Isaac as a burnt offering. See Genesis chapter 22. Following a protracted struggle, the messengers of the Southern Baptist Convention voted to have the volume rewritten. It turned out that a rewrite by Davies would not satisfy the demands of the people in the pews, so the Genesis commentary was rewritten by Clyde Francisco, of whose work it was stated in the Capitol Baptist, and an editorial in Christianity Today that it was of similar vintage with the Davies volume so far as its underlying presuppositions were concerned, although it was toned down. It was in connection with this commentary that I had some correspondence with C.J. Allen of the Sunday School Board, one small part of which is instructive so far as the purpose of this book is concerned. Speaking of the book of Isaiah, Allen addressed the issue of its authorship. The traditional view has been that the prophet Isaiah penned the whole work of 66 chapters. Modern scholars have opted for a dual authorship by two Isaiahs, although others have held to three or four Isaiahs. Generally, modern scholars who hold to the two Isaiah view think that chapters 1 to 39 were penned by the prophet himself and chapters 40 to 66 were penned by the second Isaiah. Allen has this to say in the words of the writer of the commentary. Quote, 
In attempting to examine the unity and authorship of Isaiah, we are in no way calling into question the inspiration of any part of the book. Nor are we suggesting that the sections judged to be later than Isaiah contain less of the revealed truth of God. Allen adds his own words. He, the writer of the Isaiah commentary, quotes James Leo Green with implied full agreement, who said, The thing that really matters about any book in the Bible is not who wrote it, but whether the voice of God is heard in it. Why then any alarm if there are two Isaiahs? And to this question an answer must be given. Truly it sounds good to say that all of the book of Isaiah is the word of God, and what really is lost, having said this, if it also is said that the book was written by two people rather than by the prophet Isaiah alone. The answer is that if Isaiah was written by more than one person, inerrancy is nullified. And thus scripture itself is not free from error because elsewhere the Bible states that Isaiah did in fact write the second section of the prophecy. Anyone will agree that there are books in the Old Testament about whose authorship we are uncertain. But in those cases nothing in scripture can be found to lay claim to authorship by this or that or some other person. With respect to Isaiah, this is not true. In John's Gospel, it is stated specifically that Isaiah wrote the second section of the book. In John 12.38, the scripture says, translating the Greek literally, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he said, Lord, who believed the report of us? And the arm of the Lord, to whom was it revealed? The quotation, of course, is from Isaiah 53, verse 1, the second section of the book, which according to the higher critics, was not written by the prophet Isaiah. The precision of the Greek in John's Gospel is such that no reasonable exegesis can avoid the conclusion that John believed Isaiah 53 was written by the historical person called Isaiah. So even if one were to claim that all of Isaiah is the word of God, but to deny that Isaiah wrote the entire prophecy, then the result is to call into question the truth of what John wrote when he stated that Isaiah authored chapter 53. If the critics are right, then John is wrong. And if John is wrong, then the scriptures are not infallible. The Arkansas Baptist News Another indication of the trend in the Southern Baptist family away from its historic landmarks may be seen in a policy statement that appeared in the April 1, 1971 issue of the Arkansas Baptist News magazine. This policy statement is to be found in the minutes of the staff meetings of the Executive Board of the Arkansas Baptist State Convention, Charles H. Ashcraft, Executive Secretary. It reads as follows. All members of the staff of the Arkansas Baptist State Convention are not only allowed, but encouraged to assume full liberty of academic and editorial freedom to embrace their own beliefs, convictions, viewpoints, concepts, and opinions on any and all matters pertaining to the Christian faith, to practice them, preach them, stand for them, defend them, and to live for them. However, in the acceptance of full academic and editorial freedom, such must be accorded to all others. It is hereby agreed that every staff member shall have full access to freedom for himself as a person, and may assume any theological stance he feels is right. He is not to promote, initiate, or become the part of any organization, conspiracy, movement, or fellowship which would deny, impede, harass, disfranchise, or void any other child of God the same privilege. 
The staff of the Arkansas Baptist State Convention, as a staff, will assume no particular theological stance, nor will they promote such. Each staff member may enjoy the full privileges of religious freedom, freedom of press and speech, but is not at liberty to organize others or set in motion an organization or conspiracy to coerce, force, or deprive others to his particular position. The staff of the Arkansas Baptist State Convention will exercise no option to promote or discredit people with viewpoints at variance or in agreement with theirs. No person in a place of leadership in the convention will be prejudiced in the eyes of any staff person of the convention and shall not be persecuted or promoted because of the presence of or the absence of any particular opinion or viewpoint. The statement of policy listed above was formed voluntarily by the staff people under no duress, coercion, or pressure from any facet of Baptist life in the Arkansas Convention or elsewhere and is presented on the initiative of the Executive Secretary with all staff people in compliance. This statement is made with the full knowledge of all consequences and is submitted in the general category for your information. Any actions of any staff member considered in violation of the above stated policy should be directed to the Executive Secretary. End of quote. The implications of the statement are fascinating. Take, for instance, the sentence that reads, No person in a place of leadership in the convention will be prejudiced in the eyes of any staff person of the convention and shall not be persecuted or promoted because of the presence or absence of any particular opinion or viewpoint. This means that a leader could be an atheist, a Buddhist, a Unitarian, an agnostic, or a fundamentalist without jeopardy to his position. No one is to be disenfranchised for any reason having to do with his religious convictions or lack of them. Under this arrangement, freedom becomes license, and even the word Baptist ceases to have any significant meaning or content. To follow this pattern would be to eliminate Southern Baptists as a distinctive religious entity, for they would have become so broad that no one could be excluded from their fellowship or denied admission to their fellowship for any reason whatsoever. Anyone who wished to write an entire volume on this subject would have no difficulty finding the material to do so. However, several things stand out starkly. The first is the thundering silence, to use Dr. Alley's word, on the part of those who should be defending and propagating the doctrine of biblical infallibility. There is a large body of evidence to show that college and seminary faculty members are opposed to a belief in infallibility. The literature on that subject is substantial. But where is the literature and where are the professors who hold to the historic position of the convention that the Bible is truth without any mixture of error? Why have they not risen to make their voices heard and their writings read by the people in the pews? How can anyone overlook the fact that the creation of a pair of church organizations among Southern Baptists means dissatisfaction with affairs as they stand in the convention? Why have good men in the convention started Bible institutions, colleges, and even theological seminaries unless they have reason to believe that the existing institutions are not really doing the job they were created for? Certainly there are in the convention non-representative elements whose opinions are extreme. Surely there are those who exhibit signs of pathology and strains of paranoia. But when allowances have been made for all of this, the fact remains that some of the convention's most solid citizens 
are alarmed at what is happening among the agencies of the convention. And the evidence for the existence of aberrant viewpoints is sufficient to demonstrate to perceptive people that there is a real problem. The Southern Baptist Convention is unique, for example, and stands miles apart from any of the large denominations with one or two possible exceptions. As of now, the fuse that could cause a conflagration has not been lighted. The flashpoint has already come for the Lutheran Church, the Missouri Synod. That church is in the midst of a titanic struggle to determine whether the theological conservatives can preserve the denomination's traditional image and organization. But this has not yet happened to the Southern Baptist Convention. And if the kind of struggle that ripped through such groups as the American Baptists, the Methodists, the Northern and Southern Presbyterians, the Episcopalians, the United Church of Christ, and now the Missouri Synod, is not to repeat itself, then the Southern Baptists will have to act with dispatch in the next few years. If they fail to do so, the infection will spread and the time must come when there will be a showdown. And the longer the Southern Baptists wait, the rougher the battle will be, the more traumatic the consequences, and the less obvious the outcome in favor of historic Christianity. At this moment in history, the great bulk of the Southern Baptists are theologically orthodox and do believe that the Word of God is inerrant. At this moment, there is no reason for those who support infallibility to give up the denomination. But if history has any lesson to teach Southern Baptists, it is the lesson that once a denomination departs from a belief in biblical infallibility, it opens the floodgates to disbelief about other cardinal doctrines of the faith. And a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Things will get worse before they get better. But they will not get better if the disease now eating at the vitals of the convention is not treated and the patient cured. Page 106, Chapter 6 the Strange Case of Fuller Theological Seminary Fuller Theological Seminary was founded in 1947. It was brought into being through the efforts of Charles E. Fuller of the Old Fashioned Revival Hour. He secured the services of Harold John Okaniga, then minister of the Park Street Church in Boston, as president of the fledgling institution. The school opened its door with four faculty members, Wilbur Moorhead Smith, Everett F. Harrison, Carl F. H. Henry, and myself. The seminary started with 37 students and in a few years enrolled 300. Faculty members were added, buildings were erected, and endowments were secured. One purpose of the founding. From the beginning it was declared that one of the chief purposes of the founding of the seminary was that it should be an apologetic institution. The son of the founder, Daniel Peyton Fuller, had attended Princeton Theological Seminary. Princeton was neo-orthodox at best in its theological stance and had long since abandoned the tradition of biblical inerrancy represented by Charles Hodge and Benjamin Warfield. Charles Fuller wanted a place where men like his own son could receive excellent theological education. He and the founding fathers, including the founding faculty, were of one mind with respect to the scriptures. It was agreed from the inception of the school that through the seminary curriculum, the faculty could provide the finest theological defense of biblical infallibility or inerrancy. It was agreed, in addition, 
that the faculty would publish joint works that would present to the world the best of evangelical scholarship on inerrancy at a time when there was a dearth of such scholarship and when there were few learned works promoting biblical inerrancy. The Fuller Statement of Faith At its founding, Fuller Seminary had no statement of faith. It was left to the founding faculty to work on, although it was clearly understood that such a statement would encompass the basic doctrines of evangelical faith as held through the ages. Several years elapsed before a doctrinal statement was finished, and in the interim, a number of new members had joined the faculty. Among them was Bella Vassady, who had come to Pasadena from Princeton Theological Seminary, where he had been a visiting professor. It was round the doctrinal beliefs of Bella Vassady that the first theological eruption took place. As the faculty of Fuller worked its way through the formulation of its Confession of Faith, it was discovered that Bella Vassady had reservations about inerrant scripture. When the faculty completed its work, the following statement on scripture was adopted by the faculty and by the board of trustees of the seminary. It said, The books which form the canon of the Old and New Testaments as originally given are plenarily inspired and free from all error in the whole and in the part. These books constitute the written word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. End of quote. The statement on the scriptures was as strong as any ancient or contemporary statement could be. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, 
as it is well known and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.